Now today is Palm Sunday. We're going to get to celebrate that a little bit here. But I wanted to start by telling you a story uh, of me from high school. So when I was in, in high school, I loved basketball. I know I'm not very tall. Uh, I thought I was going to be. A doctor told me I was going to be, and he lied. So that's just how it was. They told me I was going to be six seven, six eight. So I prepped by putting all this effort into basketball, and I have not grown an inch since the day they told me that. So that was in seventh grade. I was a real tall seventh grader and nothing else. But I loved basketball. I played it every single day, all summer long. I'd go to the courts outside, and then during the school year, I'd find my way into the gym somehow, no matter what. And my junior and senior year, I had worked hard my freshman and sophomore to give me free hours. I finished some credits early so that I could have free hours at the end of the day, junior and senior year, to play in the gym and practice before practice. So I was all about it. I really enjoyed this game, this sport. And so when the season came around my junior year, I was ready. I made the varsity team and I actually got a starting spot on it. Now, my class had three boys at this point and 23 girls. It wasn't a big class, but we were a little proportionally wrong and off here. But the class above me had 16 guys. They could have made up three teams before I should have been allowed on it. And so there was a little bit of frustration from some of the senior guys about the fact that I, a junior, was not only on the varsity team, but starting before them. Most of them kind of got over that pretty quick. But there was a couple of them, two guys in particular, that really did not like this. They were struggling hard with this. And I remember one day we got into practice right near the beginning of the year. And uh, we were getting into our layup lines where you kind of run through this rotation. And and I'm lined up on one side with all the starters and they're on the other side. And so they're getting a rebound first and they have to come run right by me to get in line. And the first one comes running right by me. I'm not expecting anything. And he takes his knee and drives it right into my thigh. Now, he's done this kind of stuff to other people uh, in, in the hallways and stuff like that. I'm just thinking, he's just being a jerk today. No big deal, whatever. Just let it go. About 20 seconds later, the other guy comes and does the exact same thing. I'm thinking, okay, they planned this out. Ha ha, funny. They got their, you know, their hit in. It is what it is. Well, we're in those lines for about 10 minutes rotating through, and every single time they passed me, they hit me again and again and again, both of them, one after the other. And it was frustrating to me because I'm going through this, trying to do what I'm supposed to do, trying to focus in on stuff, and it just keeps coming. A hit and a hit and a hit. And every hit reminded me that someone wanted me to hurt, that someone wanted me to suffer. And every single time that they hit me after a while, I'm having to fight tears because I remember my leg was bruised for days after this. I was sore we're going to the game that, uh, later in that week, and I could still feel my leg kind of throbbing as I'm playing And it was frustrating, but I had to fight back tears that were welling up my eyes. I didn't want them to roll down my cheeks and give them the satisfaction uh, that they were getting to me in some way. But there's something about this situation that, that you don't know that I knew. I knew that these guys were angry about the situation we were in, and it's because they were embarrassed that I had beat them out of a starting spot, and they were responding out of the insecurity that was overwhelming them. You see, as seniors, their, their friends, their family, their dads specifically, had really high hopes for them and what they were going to achieve and accomplish, especially in sports. Sports were the God of my town. And so when you were not achieving what you were supposed to, your value was less. I'd watch these guys have interactions with people and get made fun of for not being starters. I'd watch their dads watching them on the bench and then questioning them after the game. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you playing as much as this guy? You're older than him. You should, do, you should be out there yelling at the coaches. They're getting embarrassed all the time by this and they're, they're coming at me. And so I knew that 
I knew these things about what they had gone through and based upon uh, things that they had said and done before leading up to this, I kind of knew something was coming at some point. I knew at some point I was going to face some kind of retaliation for what was happening and, and they were going to take it out on me. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I kind of was okay with it. Not because it was okay, but because I knew that it didn't matter how I reacted, they were going to be this way. And so blowing up, attacking them back, making them hurt like I was, it wasn't going to accomplish anything. Other than solidifying for myself a couple of enemies for the rest of the year. That's all it would have done. So instead I decided to forgive them before it even happened. I know that sounds weird. But because I knew that no matter what was coming, they were hurting worse in their insecurities than I would be. They didn't need a beat down. They needed approval. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for some kind of reaction that would help them feel more valued. And and here's the thing. I'm not saying in any way that I am perfect in my reactions. You can go and ask my wife at any point and she can give you a list of times I have responded poorly. I guarantee you that that list is longer than I want it to be. But it's there. And I just want you to understand, here's the thing that situations like what happened in high school taught me, and that's this. I can choose to be offended or I can choose to forgive. It's a choice. And I can choose to be offended ahead of time or I can choose to forgive ahead of time. It's a choice. This whole idea of forgiving ahead of time kind of throws us off. It's a little weird to us because we're going, I don't even understand how that works. Is that even really a possibility? And, and as we walk through this season leading up to Easter, looking at the subject of forgiveness, I'm going to help you see how this choice was put on display for us by Jesus himself. So if you have your Bible with you, if you'll open up with me, we're going to start in Luke 18. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit through these last week and a half of Jesus's life leading up to his betrayal. We are going to get to celebrate Palm Sunday in the midst of this, but I want you to see what's happening in his responses throughout it all. So Luke 18, as you're getting there, I'm going to go ahead and pray over us as we dive into God's word. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open your word, to learn, to be changed and challenged and convicted, God, and to see truth. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to see truth and to respond to it in the way that you've called. We thank you, God, for all that you've done and look forward to how you're going to work today in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18 is where we see Jesus teaching. He's working miracles. He's healing the sick. He's meeting up with people like Zacchaeus. These are stories that we know well. These are stories that that oftentimes in the church we're very familiar with. We hear a lot of these things. And, And here's what's happening. He's doing all this stuff as he's on this slow journey towards Jerusalem. And so in Luke 18, verse 31, we see Jesus take his disciples aside. And here's what happens. It says, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him and whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they, his disciples, didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. I want you to see and realize with me what it is that's been displayed here. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was in front of him. He's not just giving some details of, yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. He's giving detailed uh, pieces of how it's going to work out. It's getting specific here. He's mentioning things that they're, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. I'm going to be mocked and treated shamefully, spit upon. They're going to flog me with a whip and they're going to kill me. He's going through these specific things. And a lot of us go, how did he know ahead of time? Like, how did he know this stuff was going on? Well, sometimes we say this, well, he's Jesus. He's God. He can know these things ahead of time. But do you realize something? That's not how he knew. 
He already told us how he knew is the predictions of the prophets are coming true. All of this was laid out in scripture. And Jesus, with sinless perfection, never sinning, had perfect discernment and studied the word of God, walked in union with God in a way that we're designed to and had this perfect discernment to see what was to come concerning him. If you look and say, no, Jesus, he knew this. He just knew it because he's God and those things. He didn't have to learn any of this. Go back to Luke chapter 2 and read verse 52. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. It wasn't this, oh, he just was born with all this knowledge and was ready to go. He grew and he lived in obedience. And here's what's the beautiful thing about that is it shows the full humanity of Jesus, not just the deity of Jesus. And in the humanity, we get to see a display of what the relationship we are to have with God is supposed to look like. This is what the perfection we were created for is supposed to look like in Jesus and how we're supposed to be able to discern and understand as the Holy Spirit helps sanctify us. We gain more of this. And you're getting to see what that looks like played out in Jesus. So he had these specific details of what was to come. He knew what was ahead of him. And here's my question. Have you ever been in a a time where you knew something was coming, something that was going to be painful or hard or maybe break you? Maybe you thought it just might. It's something that you're going, it might cause a lot of pain and struggle. Maybe there's a conversation that you know needs to happen, but you're you're afraid it's going to likely result in conflict. I think about getting together with my family or with my wife's family. And there always seems to be a subject when we're getting together. that's like, hey, don't touch that subject, right? You guys have that in your families where it's like, hey, when, as we're getting together right now, somebody gives the warning of, hey, make sure we don't talk about this. You know, we don't talk about Bruno, right? Okay. But we don't want to bring up the, the one thing that's going to cause a blow up. But there's times, it, it's kind of like this, there's always seems to be at least one bear at your family reunion and sometimes everyone's the bear and you're not supposed to poke the bear, right? But you know there's times that you need to bring up something because now it's holding everyone hostage. And you can't move forward and there's no unity in your family. There's no unity in whatever relationship is there. And, and there's times that we look and go, I know we have to have this conversation, but it's going to blow up in my face. And so we fear this, we see this kind of thing coming. Or maybe it's like this, you know you're going to be around a person that always seems to have some sort of opinion of your life choices. And they're absolutely sure that you punch that subscribe button to their opinion. So you get to hear all about it every time there's an update, right? That's what a lot of you have this, or you've got that person you can think of right now. And you're like, I don't want to react because they're sitting by me. But you're, you've got this whole thing, okay? Going where, where you're like, yep, I'm going to hear about this. I'm going to hear about this. And you know you're going to be around them. You know that there's something coming up that's going to hurt or be hard. It's going to be difficult. So what's your reaction in times like this? When you're anticipating things to be rough, what do you respond like? Because I, I think that we fall into two camps most of the time for this. The camp of dread and the camp of anger. Now dread is when we, we fear and we function as a victim of what is to come. In this, we often isolate ourselves, we draw back, we, we avoid contact with people that are involved in it, or we try to avoid the situation completely, or, or we try to escape it. We'll push it off and we'll try to run from it and hope that time just kind of kills it and lets it go. Some of us are really good at that. Maybe you don't even procrastinate in the rest of your life, but you're going to procrastinate conflict because you want nothing to do with it. You'll push it off. And in dread, we, we struggle because dread is a powerless place to be. 
Because there's no feeling of control or choice. In fact, when, when we live in dread, we, we end up feeling dead. It's just like the coming situation weighs on us like a terminal diagnosis and keeps us consistently feeling as though hope is never coming back. We all respond differently in the midst of that. But with dread, these are some of the elements that always seem to come in. And then we jump to the camp of anger. This is where we start justifying ourselves in our actions. We, we build defenses that are going to poke holes in whatever attack comes at us from them. And then we plan counterattacks so that maybe even pre-attacks so that we can start causing issues for them before the real conflict comes. Our desire here becomes to make it hurt them more than it hurts me. And because of that, we tend to become the cause of the conflict even if one never really actually had to happen. We're going to make it happen because I'm angry now, right? That's what happens in this camp. And anger feels like a powerful place because it's where I've put myself on the throne of judgment and I get to decide how guilty that other person is for what they've done or have threatened to do or might do. And when I seat myself there, it gets ugly. In both of these camps, we tend to seek allies of different kinds. For dread, we look for defenders and sympathizers. We want people to hear how mean someone's being to me and to feel sorry for me, enough to step in and stop it or to help us escape it. That's what I'm looking for when I'm dreading. I'm in such fear of what is to come. And fear causes us to do compromising things. So in this camp, we often find ourselves gossiping about the people. Because I'm trying to win allies over and so I'm telling them all of the horrible things that this person's done or just things that are kind of compromising about them. We'll even embellish what has gone on in order to to win people to our side because what we're longing for in this is allies that surround us and feel like some kind of security blanket to keep us safe from what is to come. Now in anger, we look for protesters and supporters We want people who will make more noise than we can about the injustice that's about to be done against us and supporters who will defend us, attack for us and push the fight along for us so that we don't have to. So that we can sit to the side and let them fight the battle. Anger makes us slanderers who will share the dirtiest details we can about our enemy in order to gain a leg up on them and to make them hurt. I want you to know something. These camps are camps we enter based on emotion. Emotions that rise up when something is coming, when we feel this offense rise around us or coming at us, something is going to happen. We have emotions that are going to come in. But here's the trick is we, we don't have to live and submit to these emotions because it leads to this junk. It's not the way that we're supposed to handle because there's a third camp. There's a third camp for us to step into. Now, three years ago this week, my family got to celebrate the end of a very painful season. Some of you know the story of what we went through, but my father had been falsely accused, betrayed, arrested, and removed from ministry, and he was banned from contact with his grandchildren for over a year. Every time he and I stood in that courtroom for two and a half years, he was hit again and again, knowing the truth and feeling powerless to do anything about it. And then as we as a family prepared for the trial that was about to happen, right as it came for the time of it, the case was dropped, and it was gone. Three years ago this week, we celebrated together the freedom to be together as a family again as his record was fully expunged and it was finally done. But there was a question that loomed over all of us at that point. What about those who accused him? What about those people that had lied about him, had, had said this happened and then signed their names saying this is truth and had caused all of this? They had just caused my family turmoil that we still feel to this day. 
They'd attacked us without explanation or reason. They had ruined everything. How can justice be without someone paying for the hurt that they caused? I remember these kind of questions coming up from family and friends over the next several weeks and months. My parents had asked the same questions in their hearts, wondering what could or should be done. And when the opportunity came up for my parents to respond and to to sue the accusers, dragging them through the muck their deceit had caused, they'd already made up their minds. I remember my dad's answer was simple. He said this, this has gone on long enough and we have no desire to drag it out. We decided together a while ago that if the opportunity came up, we would choose to forgive instead of retaliate. Can I tell you that the room that we were in when he answered that question, it was like the whole room just sank for a second. Because half of us had been living in this camp of dread where we were looking at what was about to happen leading up to this trial as as he was literally facing the rest of his life in prison and we're unsure how things are going to go and it was terrifying and there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of junk going on in the midst of it living in this camp. And so when it was gone and done with, it was hard to step out of that because we'd lived in it for so long. And then on the other side, we have half the family that's living in anger that have been planning attacks, figuring out ways that we're going to win this, we're going to battle this, and we're going to bring them down. And so when it came to this point where we had the opportunity to retaliate, to hear, no, we're going to forgive instead, it just caused everyone to stop. Nobody knew what to do exactly. I remember in my heart thinking, that's not what I really expect in these things, but clearly it's the right choice. I know everyone was feeling that, that, okay, clearly that's what we need to do, but man, I don't want to. I want there to be this feeling of justice. You see, this third camp is forgiveness, and it's the hardest camp to move into because it requires us to fight hard against our emotions and to respond in ways that the world looks at as weak or pathetic, insane and weird. Forgiveness seems weak and powerless, but it is truly the only response that shows genuine strength and control now, we all understand forgiveness after something's been done to us, right? We, we may not do well with forgiveness, but we understand the principle of that. Someone did something, now I can work towards forgiving them. But this whole idea of forgiving ahead of the offense, that's weird. Is that like a real thing? Like, how are we supposed to do that? And I'm going to walk you through Jesus' response in situations like this with three truths that you can hold on to and live by. We're going to be in the book of John between chapters 12 and 13 a little bit here and then jump into 18. So if you want to flip there, I'll give you a second to get your three fingers spaced in there. So we'll be ready to flip back and forth a little. But the, the verses are all going to be up on the screen as well. You can follow along under the event in the Bible app as well. So we're going to start in John 12. Verses 32 and 33. And here's Jesus before he's even into Jerusalem. Before he's hitting this point where it's all starting to happen. He, he makes this statement here. He says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. You see, Jesus knew how it was coming. We've already talked about this a little bit today, but he knew it. And over and over and over again, he shared not just that he would die, but how it would happen. And, and you may look and say, well, yeah, at this point, of course he knew. I mean, this is how the Romans killed people, all this stuff. He knew this was going to happen a lot longer ago than this. Because we see Jesus in John chapter 3 talking to Nicodemus and he shares this. He says, just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks upon him will be saved. And he's referring to something that happened in the nation of Israel that was imagery 
when they were in the wilderness. And it was imagery of what was to come. That he would be lifted up. This statement that means to be crucified. To be hung up on a cross. He knew how the offense would come. He knew how it was going to happen. He knew these things ahead of time. We jump one chapter further into John 13, verse 21 here. And here's what we see. It says, now Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. He's talking to his disciples. Not just every follower. These are the core followers. These are the ones he's been walking with and pouring into for the last three years. He's been spending intense time with each of them. He loves them. He cares for them. He's given up for them and they have grown together as a family and he is deeply troubled. His heart is breaking because he's looking at them and saying, one of you will betray me. One of you will. See, he knew how the offense would come and he knew who the offense would come from. He, he had these details Coming And then if you jump to John 18, verse 4, we get to see what happens when the offense comes. Judas has just walked into the garden with his crowd ready to, to arrest Jesus. Jesus sees them and here's what happened. John 18, 4, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who were you looking for? He asked. Do you see what it says? He fully realized all that was about to happen to him. He knew everything that was about to happen. And he stepped forward. He met them as they came. He didn't try to hide, didn't try to avoid it. He met them. That's crazy to me. We'll get into to what happens there in just a minute, but you need to understand this. He saw it all coming. They stepped into it willingly. Now I know, you're looking at this and going, but Jesus had this specific purpose. He was living out in this situation, things that had to do with, the, with people's eternity, right? This is, this is something that's going to determine whether people spend a Christless eternity in hell or, or eternity reunited with God in the relationship they were made for in heaven. This is an important thing. We don't carry that kind of weight on our shoulders, do we? So I, I get to have a, a different response. There's a little wiggle room for me because, I mean, he's Jesus. I'm not, right? That's the answer that we like to give. That's the one that we want to be the answer. But join me in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. It'll be up on the screen here. And here's what it says. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. I love this section because in some versions it says, let your conversations be seasoned with salt. Do you know what salt does? Salt does a lot of things. Everybody always wants to go, it gives flavor which is true. It does give flavor, but it also preserves. It says, live wisely among those who are not believers. For most of us, the conflicts that we're in, it may not be with someone who's not a believer, but there are people who do not know Christ that are going to see your response and reaction. You're going to be around people that are going to see the way you act and respond in times like this. And in your response and reaction, you have an opportunity it's an opportunity to, to live things differently than what the world would push. An opportunity to show something different that can preserve the witness that you have with them. 
Sometimes we're afraid to have a conversation with someone about Jesus because they might get offended and they might run away. But when we are able to fill that conversation with grace in how we speak and how we talk, it preserves the opportunity for it to continue on into other conversations. And the way we live and respond that they see also does that. But here's the other thing that salt does. It creates thirst. When people see you respond differently than they would in a situation, when they see you respond differently than what the world would say you should or what you seem to have the right to respond with, when they see you respond differently, they're going to want to know why. They're going to be thirsty for answers on that. And so the way you live in this matters because people's eternity is at stake. And your witness to be able to share the truth that they can find hope and life in Jesus is what's writing on this. So you may say, well, Jesus had all this weighing on him. We do too, as we united with him to carry out the same mission and walk with him to seek and save that which was lost. And so we need to carry this in a different way. Now, some of you may be going, well, my offenses and everything, they tend to not be with unbelievers. It's always with believers that I tend to get upset, hurt, and offended. That kind of sounds really bad, doesn't it? I want you to think about that. Because as believers, we are called to treat one another differently. In fact, one of the calls directly on us is this, to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins, which means that I have enough love for my brothers and sisters in Christ that even if they do some kind of offense against me, I have enough love for them to forgive ahead of time. In the church, it should be even easier. And if I'm constantly having a struggle with other believers in the body of Christ going, man, that's just who, this is where I have all my conflict, all these issues. I might need to look a little bit into a mirror to see what my role has been in that. Because if that's where your constant conflict is, you might have some things you need to work on more than you realize. I'm not trying to be rude here in saying this. It's just, we constantly deal with conflict in church And most of that conflict, if we would just look at ourselves instead of at them, would be resolved pretty quick. And if I'd be willing to have love instead of offense, I'd forgive a lot quicker. And I'd be ready when things come. Because here's the thing. Our point number one that I want to give you on this, uh, tool number one is this, is that we need to know that the offense is coming, but don't give it a home. Know that the offense is coming, but don't give it a home. Here's what I mean by that is you need to know that offense is going to be coming at you, but you don't want to prepare the guest room for when it arrives. We don't want to give it a place to rest and to stay. We don't want to have our hearts constantly open and ready for when stuff comes that I'm just going to be ready to welcome it in and be so ready to run in whatever camp I want of, of anger or of, of dread I don't want to do that. I want to be prepared. And now you may be going, we can't know when offenses are coming, right? We don't know. We're not Jesus. We don't have this perfect discernment or we don't have God telling us these things. But here's, here's my question. Do you ever interact with people? Because if you do, you, there's going to be offenses. I'm just telling you. It's going to happen. We live in a broken world, which means that there's going to be brokenness happening. Jesus himself said this, in this world, you will have trouble, Right? We know it's coming. Now, some of you are going, I work at home. I don't interact with people very much. Do you know you're not created to be alone, which means that in being alone, there's going to be hurt that comes. No matter where you're at or your situation, offense is coming. It's going to happen. Things are going to be done against you. Things are going to happen that you didn't expect or want. 
And, and here's the thing. We need to know that that's coming. We need to posture ourselves in a way that's ready to forgive before it happens because we know it's coming. We don't have to be naive in this. Now, I'm an optimist. I always see the best in everything, but I've had to learn how to be a realist in this and see that, hey, guess what? There are times it's not gonna be great and it's gonna hurt and it's gonna be hard. Some of you are pessimists and going, it's always hard. <laughs> it's not. Be a realist as well. We need to be posturing ourselves in that so that we're ready. We're ready to respond so that when offense comes, we don't have a home ready for it that it's not welcome. That's what Jesus did. He knew the offense was coming, but he didn't give it a home. Let me show you the flip side of this so you can see how this works. Jesus, a a week and a half before he's crucified, uh, stops in Bethany for a meal. This is at the house of Lazarus, who he's raised from the dead, and he's having this meal there, and all these people are gathered in, and this woman comes in the midst of it. And she breaks open this expensive jar of perfume and she pours it out over his feet and anoints him. She's, she's anointing him with this expensive stuff. She's, she's preparing his body for burial as he states it. The whole house fills with the fragrance of this. It's this beautiful thing where Jesus says, anywhere that the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be shared. It's an incredible thing that's happening, but his disciples did not like it. Not at all. In fact, one of them, Judas, really didn't like it. And in John 12, 4 through 7, we see what happened. It says, when Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She was coming in and doing something that was prophetic of what was to come. And also she was coming in humbly in repentance before him. It's an incredible moment of all that's happening. And all Judas can see is his opportunity to steal some more money and to gain in his pockets smashed on the floor. You see, he quickly snapped to anger and offense over the situation because he chose beforehand to be against things that limited his gain. Now, you, you may be here going, but I'm not this nefarious person who has all these like plans and secret things to try to steal from, from people, especially not Jesus. I'm not stealing from Jesus. But the truth is, we do live in this way oftentimes where we've got our gain, what I can benefit as our top priority. And when things affect that, Man, we get offended quick. We get angry. We get frustrated and we respond very similarly. Start questioning. Even if something good is coming out of what's happening, we're like, yeah, but it cost me. I'm not okay with that. And when our heart is set on our own personal gain, we will always be positioned to take offense when that's challenged. Now we got to flip to the other side of this. Let's, let's look at Palm Sunday. So Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem in, in John 12. Uh, later in the chapter, he's riding into Jerusalem and all the people are excited. He comes in there. They're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're laying out palm branches and their coats so that the donkey he's riding on doesn't even touch the ground. It's this, uh, this incredible parade of honor for their king who's coming in. In the midst of this, some children run into the temple and they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, declaring Jesus' arrival. And the Pharisees get frustrated. And in verse 19 of John 12, here's what it says. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. 
This is such an interesting statement to me. And it's, it's because they didn't say, look, everyone's following a false teacher. This is horrible. They didn't say, come on, this guy's a liar. Don't follow him. No. Instead, they showed the real issue with Jesus that they had by complaining about the fact that people were now following him instead of them. You see, as you study through uh, the Gospels, you can see this over and over and over again, that they were, not, they were not questioning all the time whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. There were times that they were going, maybe he is from God, maybe this or that. But throughout all of it, when people left them to follow him, man, they got jealous so quick. They struggled with this. You want to know why they struggled so hard with this? Because they were set on the notoriety and power that they had. And when it felt threatened, there was no response but offense. Even if they did think he might be the Messiah, it didn't matter because he was taking from them what gave them their value and therefore he was an enemy no matter what. You see, both Judas and the Pharisees had the same response. They had put their value in an idol. For Judas, it was the idea that I would have some sort of security and gain that when I can have this, I feel solid on solid ground. And he was putting his identity in that. If that was challenged, he was going to struggle. For the Pharisees, it was when I have these people following me, recognizing me, trusting me as the teacher, that's where I have value. They believed a lie. And it caused them to be so quickly offended because every time our heart idols are challenged, that's the hardest times in our lives. See, we believe the same lie too, though, that our value is based in some of these things that your value has, has little to do with your creation and has everything to do with what you can achieve, accomplish, or have. See, that's what an idol is, is it is something that promises to boost my value apart from God. And, and the problem is this, is your value was printed on you the day you were created because you were made in the image of God. You were made in his image. That's what gives you value. It's not what you've accomplished and done. You are valuable because of the image you're made in. And so don't fall into this trap, this lie, believing this because all it does is it postures you for offense. And when we get offended in these things, when our heart idols are challenged hard like this, we're willing to go a long ways. How far was Judas and and the Pharisees, how far were they willing to go? They went all the way. We see it played out together when their stories kind of meet in John 18 again, where Judas, who's had Jesus do something that lost him some money, he goes to the Pharisees and he says, how much will you pay me to betray him? He took from me, so I'm going to gain it here. I'll turn him in. What will you give me? He takes 30 pieces of silver in return for this. The Pharisees have been looking and saying, okay, how are we going to get him? How do we catch him? What can we do? And here comes Judas and they see this opportunity and they're going, okay, let's take it. Let's go for it. In fact, let's go a step further. And in John 18, three, here's what it says. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. These are Roman soldiers and temple guards that are with Judas. They have specific tasks and duties that they are supposed to be living out and they've been completely reassigned because a group of guys are jealous of this man, Jesus. And they will do whatever it takes to take him out. We do the same thing. We respond in the same way when we allow ourselves to be offended and to not forgive. When we position ourselves in a way that all we can do is be offended. Jesus had a different response because when the offense came to him, 
He didn't pick it up. And that's the next point here is when offense comes, don't pick it up. I have a one-year-old daughter. And she always, when she sees me, she'll, she'll come running over with her arms up. And she says, up, up. She wants me to pick her up. And it's always this thing that you're going, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to pick her up. She's going to hug me. It's this beautiful thing. Well, offense tries to do the same thing to us. All of your emotions are saying, you deserve this. This is going to feel satisfying. You should take this. You should pick it up. You should hold on to this because you deserve it. Look what they've done to you. Look what they're about to do to you. You deserve to pick this up and carry it. This is your right. And the hard thing is, is we want to. Every bit of our emotions is going to say, go for it. You deserve to feel this way. Sink into it. Join one of these camps here. But when the offense comes, don't pick it up. I'm going to finish the story of what happened in the olive grove here by going in John 18, verses 5 through 11. So we have Judas showing up with the temple guard and the Roman soldiers to arrest him. They come in and Jesus stands up, sees them. He knows all that is about to happen to him. And he steps forward and he says, who are you looking for? And then in verse five, it says this, Jesus, the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want to let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you've given me. Then Simon Peter drew out a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the father has given me? Do you see that Jesus had every opportunity to get away? They come in and they say, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he used that name, that term, I am, the power of that statement literally blew them back and knocked them to the ground. Can you imagine being a Roman soldier? You've been trained for everything and something you can't see just knocked you to the ground. You're standing up going, what just hit me? And he's going, who are you looking for? a powerful moment. He had the upper hand. All he had to do was call his disciples to arms in that moment. They could have won this fight. They had the advantage. He could have gotten away. He could have run away. He could have slipped out. We already saw this happen once. He's in Nazareth and he's teaching there in the synagogue and he brings up some stories that the Jews do not like brought up and he starts talking to them about how it applies to the fact that salvation is coming for the whole world and not just for them and they get so angry at him and call him a false teacher and they take him to the cliff outside of town where they throw false teachers off to die. It says they get to the edge of this cliff and Jesus passes through their midst and is on his way. He could have left at any moment. I don't know how you do that when you have an angry mob and you just pass through them and walk away. It doesn't make sense to me, but he did it. And he could have here. When the offense came, he could have done whatever it took to take charge, to take control and never have to suffer. But just because the offense was there didn't mean he had to pick it up. He didn't. Too often we don't even hesitate to allow offense to rule in our hearts and forgiveness comes when they've earned it is what we say. When they've earned it, I will give it to them. But until then, I get to carry this offense and I'm going to use it. It's going to fuel my response and reactions. But this is not the way we're called to live. Just as Jesus did, we need to live lives where the attack doesn't require an offended response. Instead, we need to live lives that reflect Christ who is willing to forgive even those who are leading him to his death. I promise you this, it was not easy for him. Just before this moment, he's praying in the garden and he is down on his knees pleading with the father saying, God, if there is any other way, can we do it that way? but not what I want, what you want. 
I want to be obedient to you and your will, but God, I don't want to suffer this way. It's so intense in this moment that he is now sweating drops of blood because of the stress that he is under. But when they come, he stands up, he steps forward, and he says, it's me. I'm who you're looking for. Let these other guys go. What was their response to his willingness to forgive and go through whatever was coming? In Mark 14, 50 and 52, we see it. All of the disciples have earlier in this night said, we will never abandon you. We will go with you to death. Peter's going, I'm not leaving you. And Jesus says to him, hey, tonight you'll deny me three times. It's gonna happen today. No, I would never do that. All of them say, we would never abandon you. And here comes the moment where they have the chance and Peter pulls out his sword and Jesus rebukes him and says, no, I don't need you to attack. I need you to stand with me. Are you willing to stand with me? says this, then all of his disciples deserted him and ran away. They left. They were gone. One young man following behind was clothed in only a long linen shirt, and when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. This section is so interesting to me because it's this imagery that we see happen two times in Scripture. Where this, there's a young man here who is now has an opportunity to be associated with Jesus. And because of the shame that was associated with that at that point, he was more willing to be seen running away naked in the shame of that to save his own skin. The other time that we see this happen is in the story of Joseph. Where Joseph is, is there in Potiphar's home and Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him. And he tells her, I will not sin against God. And so she grabs his clothes and he slips out of them and runs out of the house naked. And his response was different because he was unwilling to sin against God. He would rather be associated with God, with Christ, in the shame that was there than sin against him. And it's just interesting to see the imagery between the two here. But his disciples abandoned him. Everyone left him when he stood up and responded in a way that they didn't expect or want or think was right. When we choose to have forgiveness where we could have made things more entertaining for the people around us, you're probably going to face a similar response because we live in a world that loves the drama of a fight. They love it. If you don't believe me, get on Facebook for 10 minutes after this service. You'll see it. That's our world. That's what they love. That's what they hunger for. And here's the thing. People are probably going to leave if you don't give them the entertaining response. And here's, here's my encouragement to you. Let them. Let them. We talk a lot about being part of the body of Christ and the benefits and, and joy of that. But there are many times in the Christian walk that you're going to find yourself having to stand alone if you're going to stand at all. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were not the only Jews there. They were not the only ones who had tried to live according to God's word, who were trying to honor God. But when it came time of, hey, you will bow down or you will face death, they were the only ones standing. And they stood alone, together but alone. These are the times that we need to remember that we are never alone, but have a savior who stood alone on our behalf and willingly faced betrayal, rejection, abuse, abandonment, and death on our behalf. And he is with us So don't be afraid to stand alone in what is right because when you do, you're gonna find a strength that doesn't come from you and doesn't depend on you to sustain it because when we are willing to stand, the Holy Spirit of God fills us with strength to stand on what is right. So let offense lie, carry forgiveness and find strength because when we do this, when we have forgiveness before the offense, it allows freedom. 
And that's what we want to see because it's freedom for you. It's freedom for you when when you're not having to live in the camp of anger or in the camp of dread. You are free to function as normal. If the offense is still in the distance, it doesn't matter. I'm not constantly looking at it and going, eh, I I, I don't want to have to deal with it. I just am able to walk towards it going, it's okay. I can step forward because I've already decided where I'm at and I am now free to make the decisions of how I'm going to respond. Some of you have lived this out where you knew something was coming and you're going, but I've made the decision to forgive and to function differently and I'm going to walk differently. I remember my parents and how free it was for them, freeing it was for them to be able to walk through the situation they were in because they knew even if an opportunity comes up, we're going to forgive. It was freeing. It allowed them to function at their pace in the way they wanted to. And I encourage you to find freedom in that. But here's the thing that freedom when we forgive before is not only for you, it's for the offender as well. And here's what it looks like. It's like you're holding up a mirror to them that now they have to look and see what it looks like them coming at you because they don't expect that kind of a response and it allows them to have a moment. You're giving them the freedom to look and to see and to respond differently. They may not take it, but you're giving them the freedom to do it. I love this imagery because it's what Christ has done for us. You see, Jesus decided long ago to forgive us ahead of time for the offenses we would do against him. All of us have sinned. Sin is an open rebellion against the character of God. We attack against him. Some of us live like the, we see the story of the prodigal son and we, we live like the son who went away. He took from the father the inheritance and he ran and squandered it. He lived in rebellion going, I want nothing to do with you. And some of us, that's our heart where we look at God and say, I want nothing to do with you. If this is what what it is to be with God, if this is what God is about, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm gonna go do my own thing. Give me the freedom to go do what I want. And we run. We know the story of the prodigal son is he, he realizes his fault. He looks in the mirror and sees where he's at and responds by running back to the father who meets him with open arms. There's another brother in this story the older brother who's been living like the Pharisees, who has done what is right, who has been living according to what his father would want and been doing the right things and trying to earn the approval that he wanted and needed and desired so much. But the father never asked for him to do that, had given him full approval already. Some of us are that. We're offended in our pride at God because... I should have earned it. Look at what I've done. How can you celebrate them coming in? They're horrible people. Look at me and what I've done. I should at least have some better reward. Why don't you ever throw me a party, God? Why isn't, it, why isn't it just amazing what I've accomplished and done? And some of us live that way like the Pharisees. We're either in rebellion like Judas or we're like the Pharisees in our pride. But the truth is all of us, when we turn to the Father, when we look in the mirror that Jesus holds up, By forgiving us, it allows us to see us in our true condition and to respond. And you may be here today realizing for the first time that you are apart from God, that you have not yet put your faith in Jesus and trusted in him. And I wanna tell you this, every single one of us have sinned. We've missed the mark. That's what sin means. It's not just a list of bad things that we've done. That's not what it is. It's missing the mark. God had a perfect standard and we fell short. And because of that, we are separated from God. We can't be in union with God and his perfection when we're not because if we were in his presence in our imperfection, he has to pour his wrath out on us. And so we are separated from him. We try to be good people. 
try to earn our way back, but God does not require good deeds for salvation. He requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. So God sent his son, Jesus, who came and he died in your place, paying the price for your sins, shedding his blood that your debt would be paid as he hung on the cross. He said these words, it is finished. The term was paid in full. It was a banking term, meaning the debt is gone. It's over. It's done with. Your debt for your sins paid in full, accomplished, done. And now anyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Anyone, anyone, there's no one too far gone. You may look and say, but you don't know what I've done. Isaiah 59.1 tells us this, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear. There is no one too far gone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. He has paid the price. And all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus and him alone. And you have eternal life. That's taking all the weight of what it takes to save you and putting it in his hands, saying, I can't earn this myself. I'm gonna hand this to him knowing that he already paid it. And when we do that and put our faith in Christ, that relationship with him starts right now and lasts forever. There is nothing that can take it away. You are sealed and secured as his. So if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, but you are ready to, I'm gonna invite you to do that right now. So I'm gonna ask if we could just bow our heads. If you're here today and you realize that you are apart from God, but you have been forgiven and are ready to be brought back into the restored relationship you were created for, I ask you to just pray this with me. These aren't magic special words. This is just expressing what's going on on your heart to God. Say, God, I know that I have sinned and I know because of my sin, I'm separated from you. But God, I also know that you love me so much that you forgave me ahead of time. In your word, you say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God, I'm trusting that when Jesus died, it paid the full price for my sin. My debt is paid. And I believe that three days later, when you raised him from the dead, you declared that payment accepted and have given Jesus the authority to give me new life. I'm trusting in him and him alone, knowing there's no other way for me to be saved. With everybody's heads bowed, I wanna just encourage you on this. If you today prayed to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, I wanna know, I want to talk to you. So come and see me out in the lobby because I wanna come alongside you and find someone who can walk with you in discipleship. I don't want you to feel like a newborn child left alone in the cold. We wanna walk with you as a church and help you to grow in this. If you're here and you already know Jesus, we're gonna sing a song here. And I want you to just reflect. I want you to listen and to think about what he has done and what his forgiveness looks like. And I'm asking you this question, does your life reflect that? Because in Ephesians 4.32, we as the body of Christ are called to something. It says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Let's reflect on what that forgiveness looks like.
knew what was coming and yet he still came and just as the people celebrated on this day two, over 2,000 years ago as he rode in to Jerusalem we want to celebrate together 
and join with the people and singing as they shouted on that day. In John 12, 12 through 13, it says, The next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Join us in celebrating today.
Christ come and saved us. You guys are dismissed. Bring someone with you next week Sunday for our Resurrection Sunday service. Have a great week.